0: Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is
1: constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. Buongiorno, film fans. Welcome to uh, a special episode on Cinema Paradiso. Yeah, we're headed
0: to the old world today. Uh, This is our slightly, I'd say, uh, overdue uh, bonus episode as selected by... Uh, one of the uh one of the listeners on Instagram uh Tony Sansone or Tony Sansone uh not sure how Italian we're getting there I don't want to make any assumptions but they did pick Cinema Paradiso when they uh when they won our our draw back in back uh back late last year
1: yeah uh you know Tim and I wanted to kind of put this out into the world that we uh I think this first one was a success Tim this was something that neither you or I had ever seen and uh mm-hmm. I know we're going to get into it in a bit uh maybe you just want to talk a bit about our what's been going on lately,
0: yeah, absolutely. We will dig into this and and you're right we we hadn't we hadn't seen it before, but it's one that you know I think everyone, if you're paying attention to cinema culture even a little bit, it's somewhere on your list somewhere in the back of the mind, so it was good to get around to it and really dig into it and we will do that shortly, but to start uh I mean normally we sort of open this up now with talking about what we've been doing lately and uh last night tay and i actually went together with some friends and saw john wick four and uh i i think i think we had a great time what do you think tay
1: yeah john wick four uh was my favorite since the first john wick movie i would say it was uh, a good time it was very long but i didn't feel like it dragged or anything really so it had a good pace I, I, i thought it was pretty
0: good there's a real balancing act, I think, to what they, they do in the John Wick movies because especially, you know, this one comes in close to three hours and it can't be all, uh, you know, gun-fu and, uh, and judo throws and, and you know, car battles and stuff. Uh, but it can't all be lore either because I think that's why you and I, we probably ranked number three the lowest because it really went hard in lore to to an extent that kind of, for me at least, got a little eye-rolly. There was never, I never really needed an explanation for the structure of their underworld and uh and things like that. Uh, yeah, and I also I think I'd probably still put number 2 above 4 just in terms of how it it sort of ramps up and accelerates. I think it's a great sequel. Uh but I don't I I wouldn't argue too hard with you about saying 4 is is right up there uh below number 1.
1: Yeah, I think these films have a tough task in front of them trying to be this epic action franchise. Well, you know you still have to keep your audience entertained Mm -hmm. while not over extending yourself with all the action sequences Mm -hmm. so i thought they did a good job balancing that and keanu reeves i thought had i don't know i didn't think he was particularly strong in some of his delivery but obviously this franchise was a massive commitment for him and i think that he honored it pretty well and they wrapped it up in a nice way that i think is very fitting for fans and uh I guess like even just critical movie people like us who wanted to see something a bit outside of your atypical ending and uh, Mm. I like that
0: yeah no I think they they threaded a needle really well they knew how to land the plane it's definitely I feel like the first act feels like more standard wick that you've gotten over the past two movies and then they really like hit the nitrous for the last hour And it really works. And, like, you could tell our our audience, the theater, was getting more amped. You're getting more vocal reactions. It was tons of fun. And, like, for Keanu's performance, like, I think he definitely speaks less in this one than any of the other ones, right? Like, I think he probably says 12 words in this movie.
1: Yeah, but they have so many of those instances where they just have, like, the long pause, and then the music cuts out, then he delivers this line. And about 50% of those didn't work for me.
0: Yeah, and I mean, like, most of the time, it's it's his, like, trademark, yeah, right? Like, his mm-hmm. three-syllable, yeah, which is kind of like, I think, so, part of his Canadian roots. That's kind of how we say, yeah, is it? it has, it's got a couple left turns in it.
1: Um, it's kind of like, e ha but connect. A little bit, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> um, no, but, and, and I mean, it's almost like uh, the type of performance that you can't judge in the way you judge any others because... 98 percent of it is the is the the action performance right so it's like does he sell the fact that he can pick up a pair of nunchucks and, and 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 use them in a committed fashion right can you believe that he knows what he's doing right um how many times can he flick an empty cartridge out of a handgun and you still like watching it happen um personally i'll watch that every single time i like it, it doesn't get old for me those uh sort of tactical reloads um yeah, things like that I think I think works really well. And uh, uh, in another podcast I was listening to, another reference I'll make to the Big Picture podcast, I think they made a good point that Keanu is, and I think we talked about this a little bit when we did Point Break um, in that Keanu month, is that Keanu is more of a canvas than he is a paint. Um, so it's almost like with the right director, with the right script and the right intention and understanding what he can do, things can be laid upon him that work really well he's not so much something that a that a a director would would use as a paint so much as you put this to other he he's something that that other things can occupy and i i think this is a great obviously like his his iconic modern role uh for for great reason
1: yeah i'd say like for younger audiences this is how they recognize keanu reeves right he is john wick to them Mm -hmm. he's not the 90s action star that we kind of see him as or or as uh bill from Neo.
0: yeah yeah definitely not bill and ted maybe not neo yeah
1: i guess he's he's
0: definitely i'm i'm in the i'm in that neo pocket
1: yeah to me he's speed he's neo he is (laughs) uh point break and uh, that's my era of him but it's really cool to see uh, and we talked. We've talked about Tom Cruise doing this a bit too, just like kind like this aged action star, kind of honing in on a on a franchise and really committing to it. And it's nice to see. Um, and today we're going to talk so much about the tradition of cinema, and it's coming all the way to where we are now with John Wick. It's pretty. It's an interesting discussion to have in relation to something like Cinema Paradiso.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, the theater was. I what would you say, like seventy percent full? Yeah,
1: and engaged.
0: Yeah, no, they were locked in. I mean, they were locked in, but like there's also, you know, we had people two rows in front of us trying to take pictures of the screen. Like someone had their camera ready, their camera app out and ready, waiting for the John Wick 4 title card.
1: I just expect um, that at every movie theater now. The need for attention and to have that personally in your phone is just I don't know, it's kind of disgusting behavior if you ask me.
0: Like who is that for? Like you put that on Instagram? Who's yep. like giving you a little like, you know, applause emoji because you went out and caught John Wick. And like, if that's your thing, like, I don't know, take a picture of the the poster that's framed outside the theater. That's what it's there for. Yep.
1: Right? I don't like to see phone lights when the movie starts, but, you know, no, that's, that's the sick. way people are right now.
0: Well, I mean, we're we're not addressing the uh, the baby in the room in that <laughs> literally <laughs> someone brought a baby to the John Wick 4 screening. Um, Keep in
1: mind, this is a three hour
0: rated R film. With just like a soundtrack of gunshots more than like, you know, um, I don't know. It's like post dubstep. I don't know what you call like the sort of like electronic score to this. It's not dubstep because I know that's outdated. I'm not that old. It actually,
1: I felt like it was going a bit old school. It felt very like industrial techno.
0: Yeah. Um, And then I mean, just like an endless number of like covers of well-known songs as needle drops, but done by some like anonymous female rock singer who i don't i don't i don't want to be unfair like she she does a good job i don't know who she is and often it just feels like well why don't you just play the original anyway loud audio uh we we're at um cineplex avx so that's dolby atmos audio a lot of channels a lot of power and this uh this baby was sat in the in the top corner uh with her parents on a uh, on a phone for like three hours straight phones on full yep. brightness which luckily we were out of the sort of cone of cuz that's the thing that would drive me nuts and I actually have I we did we talk about this on the Nope podcast we had a we had a child sitting next to us when we saw Nope and uh and the mother the mother was insulted by me when I told her that her kid couldn't be on her phone during the movie Yeah um, so, yeah, you know, this is where I'm coming from. We got, I'd say we just got lucky in this one that we weren't really close enough to this family to be affected by the light. But in the quiet parts of the movie, you could hear the audio from the kid's smartphone.
1: Yep. Um, I actually luckily didn't catch any of that audio, but uh, I was just grateful that they at least sat in the back row, back corner, tucked away from everybody else, even though they were clearly bothering some people around them. Um for yeah, I mean, these movie there theater goers right now, out yeah. there just have some etiquette.
0: I mean, that's the thing, right? Like I it used to be like you'd get angry at people who or or you you could there could be an argument to be made for like, well, you know, people um you know shouldn't talk at all or you got to keep an eye on like you know light up uh light up watches and things like that. Someone someone had a smart watch a couple rows in front of us that was like the brightest thing I've ever seen. I don't know. I don't actually understand how a watch face like that can generate that much light but but now it's like you know we're trying to politely ask people don't bring your baby to John Wick 4 (laughs) right don't 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 bring your baby and then have them be on their phone the whole like I yeah I'm feeling very old and very disconnected because I don't even know how to begin a conversation like that because we're clearly starting from two different planets right how do you bridge that gap
1: yeah I think the base level of understanding is just off from the get-go there
0: Anyway, so we had a nice full theater, whole families coming out for this wild ride to see John Wick's conclusion, um, and uh, a real, like, uh, a nice sort of, like, energy in the theater, not quite to the level that you see in Cinema Paradiso, but, um, you know, still still nice in 2023 <laughs> to to see this many people out.
1: Yeah, it's always nice to highlight the, the good theatrical experiences that we still have today. Uh, I know it's not quite the same experience as it once was, as we're going to talk about uh, a lot of cinema history today. But mm-hmm. having act- these big action franchises is still somewhat of a blessing, even if it's something as simple as a Marvel f- movie in that franchise. Going to see that in the theater is still an experience, and I, I still can appreciate it for, for that.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, on that note, I am looking forward to this summer, we get the second installment of the Spider-Verse series with, um, I want to say the subtitle is Across the Spider-Verse. Um, yeah, just make and, it
1: really confusing, like all the other Spider-Man titles they've been releasing yeah, lately.
0: Absolutely. There's no mistaking this one because of its distinct style and because of how hard Into the Spider-Verse hit a couple years ago. Um, and uh, that's a, uh, it's a good time to let you know that in two weeks, we're going to be doing an episode on Spider-Man: Into the Spider-Verse as a part of our animated movie month. I think last time on the podcast we mentioned that April was going to be animated movies, but we didn't say what one we were going to do because I had a last minute second thought that we didn't go with. We are sticking with Into the Spider-Verse that'll be out in 2 weeks. Um and within within a day or two of this episode dropping, we'll do a vote for the uh, the listener selection for animated movies
1: for animated April. Yes
0: m 8 April in not so much celebration but in recognition of the Super Mario Brothers movie coming out. The colossal flop that will be You say that. I don't know that it'll be a flop, man. I think I think there's lots of people who want to see
1: that movie. Okay, and what are think, we what's the over under? What's what's the flop? What's the uh, flop? Like budget? for the
0: first weekend or like whole whole take?
1: Uh let's say the let's say the whole bag. Like the whole theatrical okay window the
0: whole theatrical okay the whole window domestic and international like global yeah F- 450 million 450 I'm, million
1: i'm taking Ooh, that's a good over under that's close to where i was thinking i'm gonna say it goes slightly over that i'm gonna say it's in the 600 million
0: okay right on yeah that'll be interesting because i do think it'll have like the characters are so clearly well known that I do think there is an immediate global, like international markets are just going to be like, they're just going to eat it up. Right. I guess my um, question is
1: more so if even say they hit 600 million, is that going to be enough for this movie to make?
0: I think absolutely. I think if it makes,
1: cause I think, I think their expectations are over, very
0: high. Eh, probably. But I, I don't like, I doubt the budget was insane, you know? Um, in March, uh, earlier this month, they said this. This uh, quote from Box Office Pro says the film has the film only has a 125 million dollar budget. Um, that's it. So I'd th- I'd say you're right. I think isn't it generally like the the sort of like rough rule is like you kind of have to four x these days on like these bigger things to be I've like that's a just success. Double, but is it just I don't know if it's just double doesn't seem like enough. But I would say like you want you want to be nice and safe like it probably has to beat 350 for them to look at like making a sequel
1: you know well yeah and for a movie like this that actually has a massive advertising campaign behind it i would mm-hmm. say it's more than double but i think the average for your typical movie is half of it it's like you take the budget and you double it for advertising mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's the other thing, right? Like half the time, budgets do not include advertising, so the the budget could in in effect be more like two hundred, two hundred and fifty million, like all told. Yeah, um, and right now, like on Deadline is projecting up to ninety million on the first five days, um, which I mean, we'll see. I don't know. I get it. Also depends on what it's up against. Like the, obviously, there's a ton of factors. John Wick is um, trending for about $75 million this opening weekend, which is great. Yeah, that's good for them. Good for them. Just as a, as a frame of reference. But, uh, Taylor, speaking of budgets and box office, how much do you think um, – oh, what's this movie called? Um, not the one we're talking about, the movie in the movie. Hang on. It's in my notes. Hang on. Uh, the Fireman of uh, Vigiu, how much do you think that made at Cinema Paradiso on that opening weekend?
1: Sorry, I didn't recognize the English title there, Tim. I'm only reading it in Italian. By all
0: means, hit, hit us with your best Italian, Tay. Eh?
1: I, I, I pompieri di <laughs> yeah. Uh
0: Apologies to all our listeners, a few of which I know for a factor of Italian descent and in, in Italian-speaking families. Um,
1: and you're welcome for my correct pronunciation.
0: Yeah, I took one semester of Italian, and uh, it, it was lots of fun. I don't think I, I took much with me, though.
1: And you didn't watch Cinema Paradiso? No, we didn't. We we That's worked crazy. on you know
0: grammar and conjugation
1: and vocabulary. Isn't that wild? See, I took Spanish in university for one course, but it was a Spanish cinema course.
0: You watch some? Um, you watch some Hodorowski? Some golden poop?
1: Nope. But. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah you know what in retrospect that would have been that would have been better than most of the movies we would have seen Is that called that the class.
0: Holy Mountain Mountain of God yes. holy, holy mountain. mountain yeah Taylor um, we're talking about cinema paradiso we gotta stay on right.
1: topic here right,
0: Tim <laughs> uh so if anyone doesn't know so this movie's uh from nineteen eighty eight uh, is when it was released in Italy. It is in many ways considered to be the thing that sort of reignited the Italian uh, cinema industry at the time. Um, It is a classic. It is beloved. It'll show up on like your IMDb Top 100, your AFI, your BAFTAs, like so many things like that. It's just sort of something people include. It's a movie about movies. It's a movie that filmmakers and cinephiles tend to love because it's so so self-referential and celebratory about these things that we like to talk about anyway. If you're unfamiliar with it, uh, we'll run you through some of our paperwork here. Uh, cinema Paradiso concerns a celebrated Sicilian director who returns home for the funeral of an old friend while recounting his coming of age through flashbacks centered around the village's cinema. Starring Philippe Noret and Jacques Perrin, and directed by Giuseppe Tornatore, Cinema Paradiso was released November 17, 1988 in Italy and uh, was re-released or brought for the first time over in uh, May of 2002 in Canada. Uh, check the show notes. You can see where you can watch Cinema Paradiso. Uh, and speaking of budget, it was made for about $5 million and, uh, uh, you know, a tenth of the, uh, the Super Mario's 1993 budget for reference just to so, have uh, some perspective there. Uh, and it made $13 million, but that's probably not the full picture and clearly doesn't account for its legacy either.
1: Yeah, I don't think that that's, like, an accurate number or and it shouldn't maybe even really be considered for a film of this uh cultural magnitude. It, mm-hmm. You know, like this this is a much bigger movie than whatever the box office tells us it made, right? Like this movie has transcended international cinema and it's been on my watch list and all of my film friends watch lists since we started film school, kind of thing, right? It's one of those types of movies that literally just erases international borders because of its yeah. Scale and um, its ability to address mass audiences.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, its accessibility, things like that. I mean, if it galvanized the Italian uh, cinema industry the way that the research sort of shows it does, then it is responsible for many, many, many orders of magnitude more in um, developing that economy, in developing Italy's cinematic presence in the modern world, uh, things like that. So, you know... $13 Thirteen million dollar box office. Take that with a with a bag of salt. Uh,
1: yeah, and it's worth noting a bit of the Italian film industry's place in history as probably one of the most significant uh, producers of culturally relevant film from like the I'd say the late forties to maybe the late sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, this included filmmakers like uh, Antonioni and Fellini, mm-hmm. and Tornatore is widely considered to be responsible for bringing it back with this movie and without any context you know i i did go to film school i i knew a bit about film history but there was just this gap in italian film history where there's just nothing Mm -hmm. being made from the the late 60s to the late 80s to the early 90s ish and Mm -hmm. then you and then yeah you do have this movie come in and obviously it takes a film of this scale and with this level of historical representation of Italy to kind of like reignite an entire country's industry and that I think that that story in itself is really cool.
0: Absolutely and then you know it gained it gained the sort of like public adoration of so many western figures. Apparently this is like uh, you know Tarantino loves this movie. He he made he made a point of programming it at the theater that he runs in LA, you know, things like that. He got it on original print. And I mean you can see Direct references to this movie and the ideas in it in things like Inglorious Bastards, which we yes. may end up talking about this summer. I think it may come back onto an audience vote. I can't remember.
1: We'll see. Little tease there.
0: Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, before we before we get too far into it, as always, we almost forgot to say the tagline, which I mean the English one, the one that I was able to find. Who knows how accurate this is? Is a celebration of youth, friendship, and the everlasting magic of the movies, which
1: is accurate yeah keeping it nice and broad and simple probably in order to address an american audience with an italian film um it's simple but it's direct and to the point and don't really have much else to say about it mm-hmm. but yeah i mean where do you want to start to dig in on this Tay? there's i mean well there's, there's I, a lot. I did <laughs> want to start with uh giuseppe tornatore mm-hmm. because not a director that like, I know a good bunch of Italian directors and he is not one whose name rings a bell right off the bat, even though he's responsible for this film. So looking into a bit of his filmography, he seems to have made several epic length films, um, but nothing that would suggest that he had this up his sleeve. You know, like there's nothing that would have been mm-hmm. like, Oh, this guy is a legendary filmmaker who is then going to become the guy who makes this Cinema Paradiso that brings back Italian cinema, right? It's it's not like that was in the in the tea leaves for this guy. So I did want to kind of bring that up because this film is autobiographical in the sense that mm-hmm. it is about a Sicilian boy growing up around the movie theater and then returning home as a filmmaker um, as an adult, and like the connections to the director himself are pretty evident. So. Mm-hmm. It kind of seems like a bit of a exaggerated reality of his.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit, um, you know, you can see the sort of like rose colored glasses and things like that. But I think he also, you know, you take those liberties when it's in service of this general idea of lauding the cinema and sort of multi-layering its role in so many aspects, both in his coming of age and, the information that it brings to the small sicilian town the culture that it brings to it the way that is um sort of uh, juxtaposed against their direct culture so like i mean the film opens with um the church literally uh censoring um the movies things like that so you have these like movies are bringing sexuality they're bringing dance they're bringing art um, all these sort of like larger global world cultural ideas and then, of course, the Roman Catholic Church is sort of filtering that as it comes through. Scene by scene, there there's almost always like some little small idea like that that's threaded into the, into the foundation of what's going on. But the foreground is always like, well, it's a little boy and he loves the movies or he's getting into trouble or he can't stay awake in church. Like you, these things where it's like it was clearly this guy's memory of being an altar boy, of not having his father around, of... Uh, falling in love with the movies, all these surface level stuff, which really like can sort of drag, you, bring you not drag you along, but like bring you along for the ride, right? Like you know his sort of intentions, scene by scene, right? Whether it's, as I said, like he couldn't stay awake in church, or when they're coming back the, from the funeral, and like he pretends he got hurt so that he gets to he gets a ride on the bicycle back, things like yeah, that. Yeah, all all um,
1: those little those little moments throughout the film are beautiful and you can definitely tell like you said that these are personal most likely to the director or just you know things that he witnessed personally and i really found that to be what kept bringing me back into this movie was just like his like the little observations made by the young version of toto specifically was really magical Mm -hmm. you know you uh, i think the young actor there um his name is salvatore cassio uh, very impressive performance in the sense that it's full of awe and wonder, and every mm-hmm. every observation he makes is just beautiful and revelatory. And I really was drawn into that throughout the first half of the film.
0: Yeah, and he's a little rapscallion. He's fun to watch. You know, he doesn't he won't wa- he doesn't listen to Alfredo for like the first third of the movie,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, and he and hey. he's not like very well behaved. So like all of his all of this defiance was kind of surprising for me throughout the film um when he says what does he say stuff it alfredo yeah. <laughs> I, I love, <laughs> whatever the I love english that. translation is right yeah it's either get stuff no, yeah, or like, stuff it
0: yeah but he's very he's very single-minded too right like clearly you know he connects with the cinema it's a place where he sees things he can't see anywhere else it's this pastime that doesn't exist in any other form around there because again at the at the time like you know they start to talk about it later in the movie but they're you know they're People aren't probably going to have TVs or things like that. At most, you'd have a radio around. You try to tune in for programming like that. But how can the radio compare to the size of the projection and the sound? And they make a distinct point of the community of this theater, right? Like I love, like if you if you if you watch this movie and sort of like just filter out all the young Toto stuff, and you're just looking at the presence this theater plays in this community as being a meeting place as being a place where people come to take naps or to make money or i mean there's sex work being performed in the bathroom seemingly right like every every facet of this town is threaded through this theater in one way or another from the priest to the sex workers to the old to the young to various forms of like youth and and sexuality being presented in a number of different ways like it's very i think very densely layered into the uh the setting there right it's not just going there to see a movie it's not as much people love the movies and in the scene we're going to talk about there is a verges on like a a chaotic um revolt uh uh, that that's incipient uh, in, in 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 this scene where, where people may not get to see the movie that they want to see when they want to see it.
1: Yeah, you really see the cultural significance of this communal space, and it really f- operates as a microcosm of a small Italian town. You get to mm-hmm. witness all these different characters uh, develop throughout the course of this film as they relate to the theater. Uh, we have, like, a couple who... I think the first time we see them meet is there's a horror movie screening at the theater and they're the only Mm -hmm. two not covering their eyes and they meet eyes uh, from the lower and upper balconies. And then later Mm -hmm. throughout the film, we see them sitting together. Then we see them have a baby together. And then when the theater is eventually torn down, we see them at that as well. And we, and you could pick out any of the figures we see at the theater from like in the early days and you can kind of trace them. They'll show up periodically throughout at different events in the history of the theater. And it really mm-hmm. paints this beautiful image of how significant the theater was to this town, which is ultimately the point that I think Tornatore is making by creating this film that is seemingly both personal and uh, for the people.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a lovely, if, to whatever degree, you know, filtered through rose, rose tinted glasses or, having rounded corners are being exaggerated, I do think it's a lovely semi fictional document of of what I, I can believe was the case in settings like this where this is really like there is not obviously there's no internet, but like there there's there's limited phones. There, you know, newspaper circulation is not at this widest level. So like the most undiluted news and influence that you're getting from other countries or even from just your country's sort of um national priorities uh in art and culture are through movies right because like you know us growing up didn't have the internet for the first couple of years and things like that but after that you're connecting with people and you're finding ideas and you're you're latching on to trends via that technology and otherwise you know i would say it was probably school was sort of like the center of my community right that's where you're learning new things that's where you're finding out about what the next exciting thing is, but I mean, still at the same time, you know, we had national newspapers and people could talk to each other on the phone from other side of the world. So to whatever degree it's exaggerated, I really like the idea being presented here that in this one moment in time, you know, after cinema and its technology was relatively inexpensive enough and accessible enough that you could set up a theater in a town of this size, but before before I guess like TVs and, and broadcast TV signals, it's that little pocket. The cinema was a was a was a centerpiece of a, of your community and of a social setting. And it's a really special thing to see.
1: Yeah, and it's where all types of people could gather too, right? I, I think I made mm-hmm. the point in my notes that you see all a whole variety of different people, whether it's different classes of people, because you have the upper balcony and the lower balcony, you have people talking about Being illiterate. So you have different levels of literacy. Mm -hmm. Um, You have different ages, you know, from little children to elderly folk. And Mm -hmm. it really is this gathering hub that also is the way that the film tells the story of cinema history in many ways. Mm -hmm. And I, I really think that the allegory there is beautiful because we literally learn everything from. How light passes through film to how a projector works uh, to the method of hand cranking a projector to like the modern day like celluloid, the non flammable celluloid. We see the progression in technology Mm -hmm. in exhibition and it's all told through Toto's personal experience of learning the process of projecting film. Um, learning, you know, like through his personal experiences that celluloid is flammable, both from the house fire Mm -hmm. he causes and the theater fire that we're going to discuss in our scene. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the place where Toto sees tragedy. He sees, this is where he first learns about his father's actual death in the newsreel before a film. Yeah. This is where he uh, experiences sex for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like a very full arc of this character and it all these like little anecdotes kind of translate to broader stories about the cinema and its broader experience and the the experiences that it can create for people and i think that that's a really beautiful thing
0: I i think it really recognizes the role that cinema can play in a person's identity right like it's not just a way to kill time is something that has had an influence on you and not even just well you know at that time this is what i thought because of that movie that i saw and things like that it's like no this is a part of like the arc of your life right and and obviously he he has this time which either he's speaking to to some degree in an autobiographical manner or to whatever degree exaggerating but he picked this correct this perfect timing where it is there would be no other influence greater than that and maybe the only other arguable one would be war like if he was of age to go to war or if he got really involved in the church and that maybe the idea that cinema would be on the level of you know uh war and religion mm-hmm. is i think something that you could maybe only argue would happen right there but you and i can also speak to that too i love um we haven't talked about it much but alfredo Played by Fui- uh, Philippe Norat, uh, who's the projectionist and uh, Toto's uh, childhood friend and his mentor and his encourager. Um, lovely character, lovely performance. Just the-, the perfect looking guy for that. This yeah, round really face, magical. big mustache, like just made for this type of role. I love, though, um, just sort of connecting from the last thing the influence of cinema in your lives, he relates so much of what's happening in his day-to-day life to a reference from a movie, right? He will quote um, Antonioni, or he'll talk about John Wayne or Chaplin as being things that he associates directly with big parts of his life, or that simply apply to what's happening in front of him. We'll talk about that in the scene. He references something in when he's talking about the mob. And I, I find that that rings very true, Taylor. I'd say like half the time... I'll be in a conversation with someone and something that they will say or something that we arrive upon pings a reference in my mind. And half the time it's a bouncing act of being like, do I do I bring this up? Like, is there any point in being like, oh, yeah, in this movie from this time and this thing, there's this thing that happens. It's just like what we were talking about. And you know, with you I can just say those things. With some people I can't, and it's how it is. But like it has you know, the the, the degree to which I watch movies and, and try to pay attention to movies and um ingest movies has now sort of infected my, my thought processes, right? It's it's a series of references, it's a series of oh, that's like that and that's like that.
1: Life is just a bunch of reminders for movies, man. Yeah, that's that's the way it works. <laughs> Every Everything <laughs> you see, every interaction is just like, oh, yeah, I saw that in a movie. Mm-hmm. So I feel uh, <laughs> very seen
0: by Toto, by, yeah. by Alfredo.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but the way they paint it is very, it's not tragic in the sense that he's like a loser because his whole life has been based around the cinema. But he does have a couple mo- very poignant moments where he basically tells Toto that this isn't the life he wants for him as like the lonely mm-hmm. projectionist who all he has for cultural learning is is films. Mm -hmm. doesn't have people to be around, doesn't get to experience holidays. And I thought some of those moments where they take a step back and Alfredo really lays out the realism of it, where it's really impactful because the movie is so celebratory and really uh, revels in this notion that the cinema is this beautiful, magical place. But from Alfredo's perspective, it really was like a a sentence for him. He really didn't have another Mm -hmm. life outside of there
0: yeah I, I that's the other thing I wanted to mention is i I like that in theory we we do this or at least I do this a lot in the podcast where we talk about what might this have been otherwise. If you take this premise, you think about what the script could be, you have a director writing a script about his life, loving the movies, celebrating the movies. I think you could very easily see this movie being about directing and being about a director. and I really love right. that their sort of focal cinematic role in it is the projectionist. And it celebrates the hard work that they do, the undeniably important role that they perform. Now, the cinema would not be what it is without projectionists who are often uncomfortable, worked in very unsafe conditions. They worked around highly flammable materials. They operated these machines with a lot of skill and a lot of craft. They're cold when it's cold out. They're hot when it's hot out. Uh, they're alone. Uh, they, have to, you know, they, have to, they have to pee in a bucket, right? I think it's again, it feels like another important sort of little tiny document of um, this thing that was only for a time had to be like that. Mm -hmm. And only in the setting too, where you wouldn't necessarily you could have a staff of projectionists in a larger city in Rome or or something like that. Right. But in this particular case, it was him keeping this place going. He was responsible for this focal point of this community and this thing that affected so many people, brought people together, created families like that, that sort of like, you know, D plot line that you mentioned. And um, uh, he took orders from the church and, you know, he nurtured people like Toto um, and he created something special. And I love that it celebrates that and not so much the director because there are so many movies out there by directors that's about how difficult directing is or how important directing is, stuff like that. So it was a nice change.
1: Yeah, I really did nice appreciate that. Very nice to. We got to skip that whole part where he becomes a prolific film director. And it's just like Mm -hmm. we see the build up to him leaving the city and then we see what he has turned into after 30 years of being away from the city or the village, I Mm -hmm. should say. But I really like how they, they just took that time period of Toto's life out of the film entirely. Not to say that it was ever part of it originally or anything, just like I'm happy they didn't even focus on that part of his life because like you said, that's an overwrought subject matter. I don't need to hear from a director about how hard directing is. I just want to see the magic of cinema displayed.
0: There's kind of a surprising degree of modesty at play here in not making, even as you said, like when he leaves Sicily, I think you could very easily assume like, okay, now it's going to be, there'll be scenes showing his time on set. And he'll be like, here's a lesson that I learned back in, back at the cinema Paradiso. And I'm going to apply it here on set and people will think I'm a genius or I'll solve a problem because of something Alfredo taught me and they're like no we're skipping right over that. Well um, to
1: that point right there that's that's actually a great point because typically you show all you give all this pretext so that way your character can like pull from their bank of knowledge mm-hmm. and use it later in the storyline in their arc of their character but in this the whole it's not pretext expi- it's text. yeah exactly the experience of the theater is so informative and is so fulfilling that we don't need to know all the in-between of how uh, Salvatore became or went from projectionist to prolific film director. We just can infer all that because of what we've seen him experience at the cinema Paradiso. And I mm-hmm. think that that's, that's a tremendous skill in understanding what your character is and then writing that writing this film out in a screenplay form. That's, that's just good recognition of what you can do with the power of what your first act gives.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, yeah, it could have gone a different way, and I really like sort of the the control and the focus in this. It's fantastic. Um, So, Tay, anything else
1: you want to touch on before we hop into our scene? No, I think that's pretty much it. Um, Covered Toto's story and the cultural experience of the theater, which were the big subjects I wanted to touch on before we get to our scene. Um, So, our scene today takes place from 4952 to 5752. Um, it's about a an eight minute scene. Keep in mind that this is a three, nearly three hour film. So we're, this is about one third of the way through the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And in this scene, after a vou- very rowdy screening of *I e Pomperi di Vijoux, uh in nineteen forty nine. Bella. Pardon? I
0: was complimenting your attire.
1: <laughs> 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 Thank you, Tim. Um, After this, after, after the screening, (laughs) um, sorry, I just rocked my mic there too. After this rowdy screening, which includes, you know, breastfeeding, fornication, prostitution, obscene laughing, um, the crowd actually refuses to leave the theater and the second crowd waiting to get in form a mob outside the theater, threatening to break down the doors. Alfredo recognizing the chaos outside uses the projector mirror to reflect The image of the movie onto a building in the square outside, allowing all the mob to watch this film being projected on a building outside. This then results in a fire inside the theater, and Toto is forced to run in to rescue Alfredo. The scene starts Philip Noiret as Alfredo and Salvatore cassio as young Salvatore.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I want to kick off this discussion by just sort of recognizing the high level arc of what's going on in this in the, or the high level idea of what's sort of kicking off this scene and tying it to the idea that like why filmmaker, why a filmmaker would make a movie like this and why modern filmmakers probably love this movie so much. Cause what's going on here is that the theater is at risk of destruction because people want to see movies so badly, which is the opposite of what we're dealing with right now for the past 10 years there's been a cottage industry of think pieces about is this the end of cinemas we can't get people into seats like what uh, streaming is is taking away attention things like that right now we're at risk of the end of the cinema because of a lack of interest and this this scene is the complete opposite they're they're the the guy who's who owns the place like he shuts the doors he's like we have to keep them out they're going to destroy the paradiso and I love that. That's just sort of the idea here, because it's so alien compared to our modern cinema.
1: Yeah, it is such a cultural touchstone that these that the people left outside the theater feel so removed from the event, and that's significant enough for them to create a riot. Mm-hmm. It's different than the kinds of riots we might have today, where we're you know flipping cop cars and things like that. But yeah, um, the, I love the idea of the square outside being this space Mm -hmm. that we already are familiar with because it's already been introduced to us as this space of cultural significance outside the theater where people leave and discuss the movies that they watched. There's a Mm -hmm. couple characters that are familiar to us, like the guy who clears out the square at midnight every night running around saying it's his square. Um, It's his square. Yeah, and he doesn't want anyone to get confused about that. (laughs) Um, but yeah, just the idea that we're familiar with this space outside the theater, in addition to the, like, the theater's position within the square, is really helpful. Like The whole movie has kind of framed this space for us, and now we understand the relation of the space when Alfredo begins to move the projection of the film, and now we have two screenings happening simultaneously, one in the square and one in the theater, and I think that that's in itself is a bit of a stretch of the of reality and of truth of what mm. could possibly happen. However, it's truly like this is when we talk about movie magic, this is what we're talking about right here.
0: Yeah, this is a nice fantasy. As you said, they've established the space and one of the things I love about the the Paradiso itself is like the projectionist room is right at the top front like above the front doors. So throughout the movie, Alfredo and Toto will often sit this balcony and just look down. Right? And they'll look out. You have this nice sort of open window to the projectionist room. And they're looking down at this mob. And I love this shot. I actually, it's clearly like, I don't think they could have shot it from inside that projectionist room. Because it's a shot over their shoulders as they're talking about the mob. And it's clearly a very long lens. Because as as we talked about back in Point Break, you've got the mob below making up the entire background of the shot. And they're very compressed up against uh, Toto and Alfredo. So clearly they they had to be on some platform with the camera even higher up on a crane to get that long of a lens and get it, you know, in the right sort of distance to your subjects. Um, but they're talking about it. And, yeah, you have um, Alfredo quotes uh, Spencer Tracy in Fury, the, the Fritz Lang movie from 36. He says, the mob doesn't think it has no mind of its own. Again, just sort of being that like. His entire education has been in movies. When he's going to refer to something, he's not going to talk about a philosopher or an author or something like that. He's going to, he's going to quote a a movie character from a director that he likes, things like that. Something that applies.
1: Um, And uh, I wanted to do a side tangent here on this because have have you seen Fury? No, I haven't. Have you seen Fritz Lang's movies? Uh, Yeah. I've seen, what is it? M seen M. Yeah. Um, So I, I personally think Fritz Lang is among the best of the, pre-50s filmmakers, but he might be my favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, Fury is one of his... I I guess it is a well-known movie of his, but not one that a lot of people who I know have seen a lot of movies. A lot of them haven't seen Fury. I had to watch this for a class that I was teaching, and uh, it's a crazy movie. It's unbelievable that this movie came out in 1936. Yeah? Yeah, they light a whole building full of people on fire, and then... And, like, the stunt work is crazy, and the the cultural point about a guy who is f- fixed on revenge because he almost got lynch-mobbed, by, b- even though he's innocent. It's like a—it was so far ahead of its time, and it was Fritz Lang's first American film. Um, Very, like, worth cool. watching if you are into old cinema at all. Cool.
0: Well, there's a little sneaky recommendation for everyone, including myself. I'm gonna add that to the list that sounds great,
1: yeah, and it really is indicative of what Alfredo is saying in the scene because in in fury, the mob is very scary and it's also kind of ties in because of the fire that the mob in fury caused then in this case, Alfredo's trying to prevent the mob from burning or from destroying the building, but it ends in the f- fire anyways, mm-hmm. so there is that so he, connection as well,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, like clearly it uh, must be a reference there. Um, what I like uh, about sort of what immediately follows this in their si- this same conversation, um, and again, we don't speak Italian, so I can't say that this plays in the original language, but in the translation, um, Alfredo says to Toto, he says, shall we let the poor devil see the film? Shall we keep them happy? Um, which I love, like you, there's sort of some positioning there, but the power the projectionist has. He's like, I, I, you know, sort of recognizing like, I can, I can make this mob. I can, I can, um, I can calm them down. Right. Like I can, I can grant them peace. And Toto responds. He says, I wish we could. So in the English translation, he's literally invoking the, the idea of like some form of magic, some wish fulfillment. So I want to make something happen that cannot happen. And then Alfredo performs a magic trick. And we, we haven't mentioned yet, but Ennio Morricone, one of the most celebrated, composers of all time in film and maybe the person like if you're trying to parody what film scores sound like if you're not doing john williams you're yeah. doing you're doing ennio morricone this very flowing lush orchestral music he's composed so many things that you've heard we've talked about him before on the thing which is not maybe his most iconic form of sound i'd say this kind of orchestral work is more akin yeah the thing's uh, iconic western for different... stuff you know? the
1: thing is iconic As a score, because it's not his traditional way of doing a score, but and
0: also like Carpenter clearly imposed so so much of himself into the way that Morricone did that, or the choices he made from what Morricone gave him. But anyway, you've got like this lush score in this. um, I don't know about you, Tay, but like I recognize the main theme from this as as the movie was going on. Like I've heard it, and like they'll use it in like Oscar memoriam reels and things like that anything that's celebrating the movies or the works of someone in movies it's like all right put on the cinema paradiso theme
1: yeah i i told my roommate about the movie that we were watching and he is not a film person at all but he rec no, he, really. he knew right away he's like oh i know that score that's ennio morricone and it's because yeah. he's a music student so he mm-hmm. knew how famous that da the mo- da 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 the da motif da da that comes through yeah yeah.
0: yeah, it's a, it's it's locked in your brain. Uh, it's a beautiful piece. So Alfredo performs this magic trick of projection and simple technology manipulation uh, uh, while the score sort of
1: swells. And it, it's magical. It's you, you literally watch all the people in this mob, kind of like all their f- expressions change. They realize the movie's playing on the opposite building. They all run mm. over there. And it's just one of these beautiful moments of film viewing and that... These movies always get credited for creating this sense of love and passion of the cinema, and this mm-hmm. did it better than almost any scene I can think of in movie history. Just in that well, yeah, quick, it's, that fleeting moment of brilliance of the it's projection very, on the wall.
0: Yeah, it's very patient, right? Like they. So we were talking about this before we started recording. This is like a largely like there are many a lot of liberties taken with this with this sequence where essentially like the the projection is going from the projection room into the the main theater of the cinema paradiso through this little window that's on a hinge and alfredo takes it and turns it on its hinge so that the the light the projection is both passing through still to the main theater but being reflected on this on this window and you see the projection travel across the inside of the room of the projection area and then out through that open window i mentioned before And it gets perfectly framed on this apartment building across the the square. And again, this is not precisely how any of this would work. You'd have to be very particular with your angles. We were saying that, like, we're pretty sure Toto walks directly in front of the reflected projection... And would be blocking it off when they're looking at it and seeing how happy the people are. The idea that it would frame up perfectly on the building, that that would be in focus, but also the theater would be in focus, is literally impossible unless they're somehow the exact same distance. Yeah.
1: Um, There's which a lot is of things that kind of break, break reality here a bit, but that's kind of the magic but, too.
0: It's magic. Yeah, no. The point is is you see these people where they one person sees it from the back of the mob, and then they yell, and everyone runs over. They've all got their chairs with them, and they sit down. A guy in the apartment comes out and starts, like, mouthing off to them. Then they all mouth off
1: to him. And, and he just goes back inside because he realizes yeah. he's not going to win against this crowd of people watching mm-hmm. a movie on his apartment. Yeah. And then, you know, they, they, they yell
0: out, they, they yell out that they can't hear it. And Alfredo's got another speaker system, which he just brings up to the windowsill. Um, and it's just a lovely moment of like, again, I think it sort of puts that focal point on the projectionist that like they are uh, to an extent like this medium, right? Like the projection, the movie is on the, is on film and light passes through it and it, it makes it into, it makes these static pictures into a moving sequence, but there's still there's this person involved in that process, and they're not even the creator. They are this this technician or this vessel for it, and it puts all this power in in his hands. Where he's like, yeah, let's give it to them too. He just sort of like, so it's a little a little bit deified almost. Like he grants them yeah. this this wish from from his his perch up on the up on the mountain top of uh, the Cinema Paradiso.
1: And earlier in the film, when he's talking about you know how lonely it is to be a projectionist. He does like the the ray of light that he provides is that he says when he hears people laughing and forgetting their troubles that he feels a part of that. And that's kind of exhibited through this scene where Alfredo recognizes the tension and unease in the people below Mm -hmm. and creates this magical moment to ease that. And even though he is kind of this unseen figure from above they're they're literally yelling at him from the street initially when Mm -hmm. they're trying to get the movie played or when they're trying to get into the theater, sorry, they're they're yelling up at Alfredo. They know who he is, even though he's like this faceless man behind the projector. And it really does like uh, deify the projectionist.
0: Yeah. And, I, and I, I think it's important to note they also include a distinction between Alfredo and the people making money off of the theater because it's not yes. Alfredo being like, oh, let's mirror this and we'll get twice as much money off of the same screening. We'll basically double our are the size of our theater. He's calm and he you can tell he loves what he's able to do and he loves that he's able to give this to the people. Whereas like you have like the owner and the usher are down on the on the on the ground floor. And once they start watching the second screening, the the owners like go, you know, go get their money and the usher runs up and tries to charge them tickets for watching the movie in the square and they all just tell him like get lost and get out of there, right? Yeah, which is great. Alfredo's not not worried that like, oh, we're losing money by not making them wait for another screening. That's not what it's about.
1: Yeah, it never seems to cross his mind at all. He just wants to make the people not tear down the parody. So, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: which again, I guess I suppose there are economic implications there that he's aware of. But he does it in a very benevolent, warm way. I like like Alfredo is calm throughout this entire sequence until yeah. he's not. But he has good reason not to be. And that's because the celluloid catches fire.
1: Yeah, and on that, now that we're at that point in the scene, the fire and the special effects around this fire on the projector and on the celluloid is so well done. There's I, something
0: very kind of frightening about the way it's presented. There's It's actually really uh, scary, uh, yeah. There's a reality to it. Like, there's something... Well, we know. It, it made We've been me warned. feel like the way... Well, yeah, but it makes me feel like the way I feel when there's fire. It reminded me of the thing. Some of the locked-off shots where you can tell this is a stunt that they're doing, where, where we have real fire, and it's around an actor, and they're doing something. And you can tell, like, it just has that little extra feeling of, like, we're, we're asserting a lot of control over this because what we're doing is potentially dangerous to the crew. Yeah. So the shots where, where whoever, the stuntman, Alfredo's feet are, you know, they're looking at the ground and the, the burning film that's laying onto the floor, and it's leaping up around this guy's wool pants, and he's sort of stomping around while he's working on the projector. There's something inherently stressful about those shots, and I
1: found them to be very effective. And just, like, the, the fact that the film keeps running through the machine, even though it's on mm-hmm. fire, and you're just seeing all the sparks yeah. because it just keeps whipping around, and you and I know the danger of celluloid from just watching old movies and just having that knowledge in our in our brains. But well, I'd say like the, the modern audience does...
0: knows the danger because of *Inglorious Bastards*. Right. *Inglorious Bastards* right. probably wouldn't have that sequence if it weren't for *Cinema Paradiso*.
1: That's a great point, actually. Coming yeah. full circle there, but yeah. my point there was actually going to be that the movie does kind of teach you by mm. teaching uh, Toto as a young boy because he collects the f- celluloid and then. He ends up creating a little fire at the house that almost kills his sister. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's before this scene. And now we are very aware of the dangers. We're aware of the primitive technology that they're operating here. And we're also aware of the skill it takes to be a projectionist. And in this moment, Alfredo loses his attention for like a split second. And then this happens. Mm -hmm. And it shows you that as skilled as he is as a projectionist, one little mistake can cost you. And that also informs then the rest of the movie because then we see Toto's journey as a projectionist and the skill that he must exhibit to be so good without any accidents like this, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, like there, er, there's an earlier sequence where Alfredo is telling him about how the, the projector works and he's like, if there's a fire, you cut here, you cut here, and you're like, there's a process. Like he has these best practices for being a, a projectionist, but... At certain point too, that stuff was so 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 flammable, right? It, it was subject to different safety measures. It was treated like gunpowder, yeah, right, in terms of storage and what it could be near and things like that, and whether you could smoke near it. Um, it, it's again, it's another sort of document this thing that isn't really a worry anymore, both because in the course of this movie, they show when you get to non flammable celluloid. And then obviously now we're using digital storage for, for every, almost everything except in specialty theaters anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I, you know, it's, it's tragic, but I think it's a powerful moment that it's, you know, he gave his everything to this theater and being a projectionist is not just inherently important to the cinematic experience, but there is danger to it, right? Like cinemas burned down, projection teams died. Um, people, staffs working at these places in the in the mid century, when they had a celluloid fire in their storage areas or in the projection booth, they were at real risk. And when entire reels went up in a moment, they apparently did create so much light that even if you weren't burned, you could have permanent
1: ocular damage. Wow! Right? Yeah. That makes right, sense I too. think in
0: this case they they kind of showed that like his face gets so burned that he, he's blind.
1: This is a, a nitrate celluloid explosion. Yeah, so this is an actual right. explosion, not just the mm. brightness. But yeah, mm. it blinds Alfredo, and the I the cinematography on that one on the shot that blinds him is perfect. That's exactly I, I how love that you do a classic, shot like that.
0: Yeah, I love that classic just like punch zoom to yeah. be like this thing's coming at him there's no, there's, it's the most electric way to get that sort of dynamic action across instead of, like, uh, obviously safer than, like, trying to, like, get flames to, like, rise up into an actor's, or a stunt double's face. Yeah, you have the Um, massive light on
1: him, and then you just, you shoot forward at him while he's got the wide-eyed expression, like you're the POV of the fire, and it's a beautiful effect because you, you know how much trouble he's in, and we've already kind of discussed, like, it's kind of anxiety riddling because... We know how hard this is going to be to put out. It's not like this is a simple solution to fix. And once it starts mm-hmm. getting out of his control and you start seeing him panic, then I started panicking as an audience member. I was like, oh, this is not going to be fixed. And sure yeah. enough, like there's actual consequence. This is kind of like one of those things we mentioned when we we're talking about, I guess the best word is lesser movies, where there's just not the same level of consequence for a character's actions. And in this case, it's like a perfectly innocent case of not looking at the projector for a split second and then loses focus, massive fire, despite all of his experience, can't fix it. And the theater burns down. And he, the real tragedy of a projectionist losing his vision is not lost on me either. I think that that's tragedy in a nutshell right there. That's horrifying to think about. And I like that the movie didn't really go down that path of him feeling bad about being blind, but it's not lost on me that that's like a true tragedy right there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they do make a point that somehow later he can hear when the projector is out of focus, which I think is a is a fun is a fun idea, even though again, one of the more magic things sure. that they never yeah. really have to explain. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. Like the 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 following scenes in this could be way more depressing about him sort of lamenting the loss of his sight and his art and things like that. But um it's not quite so focused on that. It's almost a little triumphant that you yeah. know, Toto runs back in um and and saves him from the fire. A very a very like the music is really going hard at that point it's as really he's good, dragging yeah. Alfredo and then brings him down the stairs. It's a it's a very powerful sequence.
1: And uh I um, the makeup job on it initially looked a little rough, but upon like inspection and watching the scene a few times now, I really like the makeup work. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah, no, I think it works. It's a little grisly and it's a little
0: dated, but like it's I, a little I think dated. it's effective. And you know, when you when you tie it together with the glasses, uh, I think it's great.
1: Yeah, and uh, I yeah, um, I really liked how we already kind of mentioned how Alfredo, his, like the bed of all of his knowledge is films, and even after he's blind, he's still able to make like these film connections. He talks about how modern times, the tra- the Charlie Chaplin film, reminds him of. The day his wife died and there's all these like other moments beyond the scene, like after he's blind, that are still very informative of his love of cinema. And I really liked how this doesn't put a huge damper on the rest of the movie, yet it is really impactful for both of the main characters. And I I really love how they shot the scene and the music is phenomenal. Overall, a 10 out of 10 scene for me
0: yeah no it's a great sequence we talked about it because it just it has all these little things to touch on both the power of cinema it's it's a lot about the the role of the projectionist which is not something you normally get to talk about or 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 need to talk about and uh you know the the both the the ups and downs of of cinema in that moment and in that style um yeah but i mean with that we'll uh we'll do some shout outs and then we'll close out this uh this bonus episode as selected by a listener Hey, what do you got?
1: Uh, my shout-out is one of the scenes from the last third of the movie. I'll call it part three, which is pretty much the last hour um, with mm-hmm. Salvatore returning home as an adult. It's probably the least impressive third of the movie, but uh, I really like the scene where he calls Elena from the phone booth outside of her house, and the whole scene is played out in one shot where her reflection in the window and her answering the phone is all told in the reflection of his, of the phone booth. And so you can see him mm-hmm. and her in the same shot. Um, yeah. There's a number of shots I wanted to call it just for purely cinematography reasons. This is probably my favorite just because of the way they were able to tell, use one shot of beautiful, beautifully choreographed cinematography to tell a story of a whole scene. It's like a three-minute mm-hmm. scene, and it's one shot. It's beautiful, very informative, uh, and very clever. So props to yeah, it was, Tornatore for that one.
0: Yeah, it was a great simple idea. There's even sort of like some connective tissue between literally like the the function of how that scene is shot and what end in our scene when Alfredo mirrors the projection. Yeah. Right? It's it's semi-transparent glass, partial reflection, partial you see what's behind it. Yep. Yeah, that's right? right. So you got that very similar idea there. And I I agree, yeah, the last third of this movie is my least favorite. It's definitely felt the longest. But it has some gems like that. Yeah. and that, That's a great thing to shout out. Um, mine is a little less serious, a little less meaningful, but I do love the idea that back in the Cinema Paradiso, cinema as as is a culture at the time was so different and maybe this town was so unaware of the normal sort of etiquette. I, I don't know much about cinema history at that time. Maybe this, maybe the, there wasn't as much of an etiquette that, I mean, we talked about with John Wick and bringing a baby and having the <sighs> phone on or talking during it. I love these Italian guys walking into the theater and greeting the whole room, like "How's everybody doing?" as they walk in. Yeah, <laughs> and the ushers are like, shh, "The movie's on. The movie's on." He's like, "Shut up! I'm I'm talking to everyone." Because, like, you know, any other setting, the market or church or whatever, right? I guess you'd walk in, you'd announce yourself to everyone there, and I love it. the idea that you're 20 minutes into a movie, right? You know, we were seeing John Wick, and I'd say five minutes in, uh, some some latecomers came in and sat near us. The idea that they would walk into the theater and just be like, "Hey, everyone, how are you doing? How's the movie?" and then they find their seat uh, is very funny to me. Uh, so I want I wanted to shout that out.
1: Well, it really highlights and reflects the the community built around the theater, and I really mm-hmm. liked that aspect because you could tell in the earlier parts of, you know, like when they're showing all these anecdotes of the theater that some people are learning what it's like to watch a movie. Like they're learning what a theatrical experience is. So it's like Mm -hmm. those kinds of figures that I was thinking of where they're like walking in and then they're being told, you can't do that here. This is a movie theater. And then they're like, okay, okay, I get it now. Yeah. yeah. So it's like just teaching that kind of etiquette. um, It's that uh, the beauty of like telling the story from that small town perspective. I think that it really cashes in on moments like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a fun thing for me. Um, but yeah, with that, big thanks to uh to Tony for selecting this movie. Uh I think we'll do this again in our next draw, which is just a couple episodes away when we hit our next potluck. Um and uh we'll see we'll see what we get from whoever wins that one. Uh but uh other than that, we just have some recommendations for the end of this episode. I am going to recommend something that like I've got a soft spot for this movie. I'm not convinced it's great. Um but uh it's it's in line with cinema parody so in that well i mean first of all its title is named after the theater that's in the film but it's nor it's more talking about the theater as the sort of center point for all these other stories so this is a frank darabont movie from 2001 darabont who did shawshank redemption uh the mist uh and the best parts of the walking dead tv show just like uh, very talented writer or whatever,
1: right
0: yeah. yeah talented writer talented director uh he's gotten the shaft by hollywood a couple of times it's real shame this movie is a mixed bag it stars jim carrey as a guy during like the um the uh the communist sort of witch hunts in hollywood when uh writers were getting blacklisted because they had they had suspected communist ties or sympathies
1: like chaplin um
0: uh, yes yeah precisely so uh jim carrey plays a screenwriter who gets in a car crash and washes up uh, like down river in this small town and the people there are like, you look exactly like this kid who went off to war 20 years ago and we thought he died. You must be him. And he sort of like reinvigorates this town. And one of the focal points of this sort of like reinvigoration of this community is that they fix up this old theater called the majestic. And it is very much about like, how lovely cinema is, and there's an old projectionist there, and there's, um you know, the the father of this kid who died in the war, and maybe that kid is Jim Carrey, and this woman who knew him, and like there's all these other facets. It's it's very much I think very easy to say that Daremont was probably inspired by Cinema Paradiso in one way or another. It's a, it becomes a little bit of a Mr. Smith Goes to Washington by the end. Um, it's It's a nice movie it's It's extremely saccharine, like I gotta tell you, like it, it it'll make you gag at points, probably because it is so in love with this Americana and golden era and you know stuff like that. Uh, but I remember really enjoying it. It's kind of nice in the same way that this is nice. Uh, it maybe doesn't stick the landing. I don't think people liked it as much, but also 2001 is an insane time to put out a movie like this, so I don't think it was probably the right time to do it. <laughs> But uh, that's my recommendation.
1: Yeah, I don't blame any filmmaker for thinking that they could make their own version of Cinema Paradiso, especially if they actually had some sort of intimate experience informing their filmmaking upbringings. But Mm. uh, I think best to leave this one to Cinema Paradiso as a subject matter, because once it's done to this magnitude and scale, really hard to come back at it from a different perspective and pass it off as your own. Frank.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fun movie. Um, you know, Jim Carrey's doing like uh, a uh, uh, Jimmy Mister um, Smith goes to Washington. Jimmy um, Jimmy Stewart. Mm, he's doing. Yeah. He's very much doing a Jimmy Stewart thing. Martin Landau's in it. I think gives a great performance. But uh, is he the Your mileage may vary. It, no, no, no. The the projectionist is. Um, oh, it's this guy with a. He's just got a great voice. Um, Jerry Black. Um if you look up Jerry Black, you'll recognize his face. Okay. He's got a great face. And Bruce Campbell's apparently in it, which I don't remember.
1: <laughs> How could you okay, forget anyway, that's Bruce mine. Campbell. Time
0: to move on yeah, time to move on for the Majestic.
1: Okay, and for my recommendation to wrap up today's episode, um I am going to pick a movie. This is the first time I've recommended one that I have not seen. Um and it's because I'm planning on watching this one very soon. Um and maybe if you you'd like to join me in watching it shoot us a message on if you like this movie Uh, it's called Il Camarista and it's by uh, Tornatore and it's from 1986 so this is the film he made before Cinema Paradiso and once again it's called Il Camarista and it's about a uh, petty criminal who goes to prison and kind of creates a whole society within prison that then starts to affect the mob world outside the prison Um, and the lead actor is Ben Gazzara who's the star of one of my favorite films of all time uh killing of a chinese bookie so i don't know much about this movie other than what i just told you but uh i plan on watching it very soon so if you do get a chance to watch this or if you have seen it shoot us a message i'd love to hear what you think
0: absolutely as always you can uh get in touch with us i'd say most directly over instagram we are at ssc pod uh shoot us a message uh tune in on sundays when we do our weekly roundup and everyone tells us what they've been watching um and uh keep an eye on our post there that's also where we do our vote so in a couple days from when this drops uh we will do our vote on animated movies we're picking a a, a slate i'd say a wide sort of range of options not not necessarily in terms of chronology but in terms of style um studios that produce them creative influences um so that'll be a lot of fun and we'll figure out what we're doing for april but uh other than that uh give into the Spider-Verse, another rewatch because we're going to talk about that in two weeks. In the meantime, if nothing else, I'd say the lesson from Cinema Paradiso is go to the theater. Go check out John Wick 4. Go watch Scream 6. Um, go watch I don't know, what's later this week? Dungeons & Dragons by uh, by our, our friends who made again, our friends who made uh, Game Night are the guys behind Dungeons & Dragons, which is maybe the only reason I'd I'd, uh, I'd consider going to check it out but Uh, I think I will go catch that in theaters.
1: All right, well, to each their own, Tim.
0: (laughs) Have fun. All right, bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in.